You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, remotely again, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. So much more fun when we're in the office together doing this. I mean, it is and it isn't. We're less likely to be barked at by Wrigley in this situation. That's true, but um, it's also useful that I can see you um, and you can wave at me when I'm talking too much. That's true. And can't do that when we do it remotely because the quality of the uh, the recording isn't so good, so we don't have video going. Yes. So. But that's so the way it goes of one half a dozen of the other um anyway paul i have some exciting news for you that you don't even know yet oh what is that guess who's back back again eric's back tell a friend oh good eric's back That's yeah fun. eric's back so we have a big kraken moment coming up later in the podcast i thought you were going to uh tell me about the new provincial court judges and i know that there are new provincial court judges and new uh, judicial justices and traffic court as well. Yes, two new judicial justices um, for for driving law related uh, purposes. Two new judicial justices were appointed today. Uh, the first is Judicial Justice Beg Fiona Beg. She has a background in criminal defense and immigration law, so she's going to be a good like um, person familiar with procedures in criminal trials that are applicable to traffic court. Well, please rules of evidence things like that mm-hmm. she's also um somebody who is uh very very uh well recognized um she's been to the supreme court of canada um she's done a lot of work with uh reconciliation and um worked on the provincial court bella bella circuit court team um so also somebody who is uh i think just a really good person um to have in that role so experienced well placed mm-hmm. knowledgeable and good person yep and then the other judicial justice i don't know much about him uh his name is judicial justice les brantz um and uh he will be doing uh traffic court as well and his practice comes from uh civil law environmental law, intellectual property law, employment law, and also in the JAG office. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, he was the uh, deputy judge advocate general for the JAG, um, which is kind of cool. Interesting background. So, you know, with two new judicial justices uh, being added to the traffic court roster, the question is uh, arises, will this reduce the amount of delay to traffic court hearings. What do you and, think? And I would be shocked if it does, because the um, there's, <laughs> a few, there's a few judicial justices who've got to be on the verge of retirement. Yes. Uh, <laughs> some who have been there my entire career and who I'm sort of surprised are still there. Uh, you know, it's not a it's not a holy quest that you're on to be a judicial justice when you get to the point where, you know, you're you're beyond your normal retirement date and you're just hanging on 
Um, you know, sometimes it's a, the, the appropriate thing is to move on. You don't, you're not saving the world. Nope. You're governing, uh, you're, you're making decisions in traffic court and it's important, certainly important work, but, uh, there does come a time to retire. I know there's at least one who uh, retired this summer, and I know another one had mentioned to me that he is coming up on his mandatory retirement date. So um, this is really just filling a future or existing vacancy. But also, remember that judicial justices do more than just traffic court. They also review search warrant applications. They run um, evening and weekend bail hearings. And British Columbia is expanding it's evening and weekend bail programs. So judicial justice... They're going to seek detention on more people or at least seek detention to the extent that they can bind people by more conditions because they're concerned of of, uh, criminality. Bad, bad criminal rates. So yeah, it's going to not really change very much, um, these new appointments as far as the speed of traffic court I think we will see them mostly as part-time judicial justices in traffic court and part-time in uh, all of the other judicial justice duties, um, really just filling gaps that are already existing and should already be filled but aren't. Yep. So there you go. That's important news. More people. Uh, Now they just have to get more people on the Superior Court bench. Yeah. Another... another, um, important piece of news that comes out uh, today um, concerning interesting questions arising from this. So a BCRCMP highway patrol member has been charged with dangerous driving causing bodily harm. And Paul, this is not just... Yeah. And this isn't just like any... RCMP member, you know, hanging out in their off-duty time and getting a, a bad driving charge, like could happen to any RCMP member. This was actually in the police vehicle. Yeah, I, and I, I mean, I don't know the details about it because, of course, you know, as is typical when they're investigating a police officer, it's years and years on before they approve a charge. And I, I'm not, I'm not knocking that. Um, the uh, it's devastating to somebody's career to to have that sort of charge laid, and you want to make sure that you're doing it right. And uh, occasionally, when people aren't charged, the public are up in arms. Uh, um, in this case, it's uh, it goes back to 2021. I don't know what month it was, but you know that's some time ago. In any event, um, an incident uh, driving a marked uh, RCMP SUV, apparently. Yes, um, there's photos from the uh, accident scene, which happened back in December of 2021, um, that show an RCMP vehicle in a ditch, uh, a damaged SUV in the roadway. So, you know, we can see there was some action that resulted in a collision between the RCMP car and another car, but surprising that a police officer would end up charged with dangerous driving because generally speaking, if they're on duty, if they're responding to an incident, if they need to you know, drive fast or drive in a way that would otherwise be unlawful, they get a pass. Um, but there are limits on that pass. Yeah, well, apparently, I mean, we do know that there are limits on that pass. It's got to be, um, it's still got to be taking into account all of the conditions and the 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 pressing need, I guess, 
Um, but uh, we'll see where this one you know, ends up going. Um, they made special note in the news announcement to say that it was a long experienced prosecutor. So it wasn't a special prosecutor assigned outside of the Crown's office. It was a, a somebody who actually works for the provincial government Crown, um, who had no experience or, or previous connection to this officer who approved it. Um, and it was approved. And in BC, we have this, you know, charge approval standard. Um, and it's a standard that was, uh, generated by Stephen Owen, who recently passed away, um, when he conducted a uh, an inquiry at some point a few decades back where there's got to be a substantive likelihood of successful prosecution. Of course, there's some flexibility in that. I think it's probably a slightly higher standard if you were to, if you were to examine it forensically of the circumstances where police officers are charged. But in any event, um, yeah, I mean, I, it will be interesting to see because we're talking about not just a general duty officer, we're talking about highway patrol. Yep. So that's uh, an important uh, distinction. It, it isn't surprising, actually, to me that an experienced Crown Council wouldn't have um, any history with dealing with an officer from highway patrol. Because by and large, highway patrol is dealing with your you know, your tickets, your IRPs, your, you know, your your driving related incidents, not usually dealing with a lot of criminal files, um, just general criminal files, and and not even in the context of dealing with criminal driving files. Because a lot of the driving stuff that we see, a lot of the driving charges, they don't, you know, you don't get your dangerous driving charges or your impaired driving charges usually on the highway which is what highway patrol is is sort of tasked with monitoring well even 15 years ago when they were charging impaired driving cases every prosecutor who prosecuted those cases would know a lot of the police officers right um as a result of the fact that they you know we didn't have the irp scheme um and now if you think it's a senior prosecutor it's somebody who was probably prosecuting 15 20 years ago um, but uh, the officers have changed, and of course, those cases aren't going to court. So you're not going to get to know them. And it's probably, I mean, fairly easy to find a prosecutor these days who doesn't know a police officer, has no connection to any certain police officer. But we used to be, you know, back in when when I started and for my first 10 years of practice, basically, you know, all the officers knew all the prosecutors because we all they all hung out in the hallway for court and they were witnesses half the time in cases. Well, they, they just aren't witnesses in these cases anymore. Of course, the courthouse is also, you know, um, a, 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 a lonely place where, where, uh, <laughs> you might feel like you're out in the desert there. You can stand in the and nobody will go by for 20 minutes. And the courthouse is a lonely place. <laughs> and the courthouse is all, yeah, I was just thinking of, uh, of tumbleweeds. Tumbling down the hallway of the courthouse, the courthouse. But when I started practice, it was rustling and a hustling and a bustling. Yeah, um, I like that line. Um, yeah, it'll be really. I'm no, no. The courthouse is a lonely place. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. We don't see a lot of criminal cases involving on-duty police officers making driving-related decisions um, in their police vehicles. There is a body of case law on it, though, um, that talks about sort of the higher standards that officers, when they're on duty in a police vehicle, need to uh, adhere to when they're sort of departing from the the 
laws under the Motor Vehicle Act, which actually arguably in some cases makes it easier to prove a dangerous driving charge against a police officer on duty when they're, you know, lights and sirens going code in response to something. You want to know what my prediction is? What's your prediction? Um, well, I would have predicted who his lawyer would be, but his lawyer is now a BC Supreme Court judge. So one who would have been his lawyer probably, that would be my guess. Uh, and, uh, but I think he'll lawyer up with somebody else and, and, um, we'll see if you get a phone call. Um, and I predict that, uh, probably a few weeks before the trial, it will end up either withdrawn or it'll be a plea to something else. Yeah, I would expect a plea to something else. Um, maybe a code of conduct, um, for the officer as far as, you know, the driving behavior, but that's a separate investigation and the two aren't related. Um, I definitely he will lawyer up because he was on duty. He probably is getting a lawyer paid for through the union. Yeah. Well, not likely to call me. Your handful. Well, sometimes they do phone you nevertheless, but in any event, that's a, that's a separate issue. So let's move on from that issue to the next thing, which is. Yeah. Our next topic actually also connects to traffic court, uh, and drive, well, not traffic court, but, but to traffic law and um, police and disclosure. And this is a recent case from the BC Provincial Court about failure to disclose in a timely fashion in a driving file and what sort of the the remedy for that could be. So this is a case where um, Mr. Scott, the case of uh, Rex and Scott, Mr. Scott was uh, driving in Langford and he gets in those like this road rage incident allegedly. So the as the the crown case goes, he swerves his vehicle around the complainant, breaks to a sudden stop to force her to stop, gets out, berates her, and then tears the handle off the door of her vehicle before fleeing the scene. So he's charged with mischief, dangerous driving, and uttering threats. Relatively straightforward, seemingly set of facts, but. Oh. <laughs> Straightforward yet yet upsetting. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, but it's like your classic road rage incident. Um, but there was an issue with disclosure in the case. So there's going to be um, a bunch of police witnesses. And one of the issues in this case, because Mr. Scott is alleged to have driven off, is whether or not he was actually the person who committed this act. And in order to prove that it was him... The Crown is calling two police officers to testify, saying, oh, we dealt with him previously. We recognize him, essentially calling recognition evidence. Um, and we're able to identify him from, like, the dash cam video that was obtained in the case. That's interesting. Um, that's always just in way of approaching it. Yeah. I mean, when I... Mean, recognition evidence is admissible, but... Yeah. When I was, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't know why it wouldn't be. When I was assaulted after the, uh, I had my first vaccination in the parking lot of Metro Town Mall, um, I had a photograph of the guy who assaulted me and I sent it to the RCMP and they said, we'll circulate it around here and see if we can figure out who it is. Uh, and they never did. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, if they did, that would be sufficient to connect it. This is the person. Yeah, this is the guy. Yeah. That's how it happens. So, but the 
the defense in this case requested that Crown Counsel provide information um, related to the previous interactions that these two police officers had. Essentially, give me the police report so that I can look at whether or not they had a sufficient interaction with him to be able to identify him, how they determined that he was Mr. Scott in those circumstances, you know, what opportunity did they have to make observations of him and ID him previously. Yeah, that's a smart That's a smart uh, disclosure request. Yeah. And what do you think Crown did? Nothing. Exactly. Like so many disclosure requests, Crown did nothing. Um, did not send the material over until very shortly before the trial. And so the defense said, well, hold up. Uh, we requested this right away. We need an adjournment of the trial. And the Crown said, well, if we adjourn the trial, there's going to be a Jordan problem. So we're opposed to an adjournment. And in the end, the judge adjourned the trial, which will probably result in the charge being stayed because Jordan, yeah. um, and put the blame on Crown Counsel. And they wow. said, paragraph 12, yeah. right. and I think this is, this is so useful to so many cases. In this case, three things ought to have been obvious to Crown Counsel before the information was sworn. So like going back to that Stephen Owen thing, when they make the decision to prove the case, they need to know that there's a substantial likelihood of conviction, which means they have to review the evidence um, before the information was sworn. One, identification of Mr. Scott as the individual involved in the incident would be the most important and challenging issue at the trial. Two, the details of the officer's previous encounters with Mr. Scott would be of critical importance in assessing the strength of their identification evidence. And three, defense counsel was entitled to full particulars of the previous encounters. Absolutely. One question which Crown Counsel are obliged to assess before authorizing a prosecution is whether there is a reasonable prospect of conviction. In order to reach such a conclusion on the subject of that case, it would be necessary to review the particulars of the identifying officer's previous encounters with Mr. Scott. Crown Counsel ought to have been in possession of and to have carefully considered those particulars before they authorized the swearing of the information. So, this, the That's right? Like, yeah. This case is essentially a precedent now, at least in BC Provincial Court, for the proposition that if there is something that goes to the heart of an issue that would be obvious that has to be determined at trial, and it's not in possession of the Crown prior to swearing the information, it's not generally going to be excusable if it's disclosed late. Uh, th I, there's lots of implications. That's one of the implications of this. Um the the expectation to look at that other evidence, mm -hmm. even circumstances where you have strong evidence. Yep. If somewhere else within the realm of the crown, there's other evidence that you should look at before charge approval, and you should have there to disclose on day one. The expectation is you're going to do that, and have that, and consider that in your charge approval. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. It also imports the charge approval standard into the considerations for disclosure and delay. So our charge approval standard is is not written into law, right? That's a government policy created by 
following an inquiry that the Crown Council have have uh, followed and abided by for you know two decades mm-hmm. um, at least, and um, that's when I remember it like showing up in the manuals that I was getting. It was back in around two thousand, mm-hmm. and uh, and now it's basically taking the position of being a. a a legal obligation rather than a, um, a policy. Yeah. Super interesting angle. And one, I think that like we can use a lot because how energy- a lot you use a lot because you make these disclosure requests for things that I think are obvious right. that they don't provide that I'd never considered before, but when you ask them, it makes perfect sense. And right. I think what happens very often is the crown get it. They see the letter from you. They think, Oh God, a letter from Kyla Lee asking for disclosure. And there's a little bit of, you know, anger and frustration. Why didn't she just plead her client guilty like everybody else? Um, <laughs> I, I put it in parentheses, but I, I, you know, I suspect there's lots of people who, who are overwhelmed by the evidence and they think that they're not going to succeed. Whereas you are not overwhelmed by the evidence and you read it closely. Um, but the point is that, uh, I think they get it and they are overwhelmed by your request and don't act yeah. and. You know, this is the 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 failure to act right there. Yep. Well, I mean, oftentimes, right? Like, I'm I'm making my request in 99 out of 100 cases. I'm making my request before trial dates are even scheduled. So, a very early stage. Then we're having the pre-trial conference. I'm raising it at the pre-trial conference. It's still outstanding disclosure, and I'm giving them a timeline. I'm saying, get it to be 30 days before trial. But usually, it's like here you. It's pre-arraignment that you do that, then pre-pre-trial conference that you do that, and half the time, you know, you're two days before the trial, and they get you part of it. Yep. So, you know, it's it's um, it sometimes feels like it's a failure of the crowd to take it seriously until the moment comes. Well, I think it's because you know, uh, defense counsel don't push back on it enough. We don't, you know, we go, oh, well, whatever, I can I can deal with this new evidence. Maybe you can, but if you had more time to sit and think about the implications and plan what you're going to do with it, maybe you would take a different strategy. Exactly. I, I, I agree 100%. Okay. But, um, that's a, it's going to be an interesting case. It's going to be very useful for you. Now, Paul, I made a promise. Promise made is a promise kept, so it's now time for a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice, Kraken Eric McGracken. Welcome to the McGracken Moment. Folks, something doesn't add up under Dave Eby's ICBC. So we've had the NDP in power for several years, and Dave Eby was the architect of bringing in no-fault insurance, which we've had in force for a few years. But there's been some numbers released recently, um, basically boasting about what a good employer ICBC is. Let's talk math. The number of employees ICBC has has gone up 35% under Dave Eby's ICBC. 
and the number of employees making over $100,000 a year has doubled under Dave Eby's ICBC. But us British Columbians, our rights have been stripped away by basically 100%. Every crash victim has no right to sue. Well, let's say 99%. 1% of you still have limited rights to sue in the most egregious of circumstances if everything goes right. But 99% of crash victims, at least, have no right to sue. But it's taking 35% more employees to give you fewer benefits, and it's taking twice as many employees making over $100,000 a year to give you fewer benefits. Folks, something doesn't add up here. I'm so glad Eric's back. That's great that he's back. Um, I'd like to hear the McGracken moment. I'll have to listen to the podcast because we're recording it without listening to Eric today because it's already Friday afternoon and we've got to send this off to the team to uh, to get it out. Well, you're recording it without listening to Eric. I listened to Eric. But Did you? Oh, okay. Yes. Yes, worth listening to. Um, continues to uh, make very good points about sort of the significant problems with the no-fault system and the lie that is the idea that we are covered and compensated in our insurance scheme in British Columbia. One of the things that I've got from all of my discussions with Eric and then reading his blog and listening to his McGracken moments is the value of somebody who sits and puts their mind to that area of the law. Um, You and I sometimes wonder why other people don't come to the conclusion about this, 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 about, you know, <laughs> defending driving cases. Um, and we think it's sort of elementary because we've spent so much time thinking about it. And then, you know, each day I come up with some other weird thing and you come up with some other weird thing and it's because we turn our mind to it all the time. And then you've got Eric there dealing with his area of it, um, and, uh, turning his mind to it. And, and there's all these insights that you, <laughs> you you or I won't have because frankly our brains are already fully engaged with the stuff we're doing. My brain's already broken. It's full. It's full. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, no, so Eric uh and the McGracken moment and his ability to sort of think about different a different way about an area of law and engage with it is great. Do you know what area of law is not a great thing to be just thinking about? What's that? Raccoon law. Oh, are we going to deal with raccoon law? Good. Yeah. Every once in a while, raccoon law intersects with driving law. Every once in a while. Uh, yes. So this is... Uh, the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Week. The Week. The Week. The Week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. I thought, fitting our highway theme uh, this week, we have a man uh, arrested for impaired driving operating on a highway in Huntsville, Ontario, about 225 kilometers north of Toronto. If I knew where Toronto was on a map, that would mean something to me. (laughs) And uh, yes, this man um, was charged with impaired driving. 
He's also got two charges for breaching some conditions that he was on, and he had cannabis in the vehicle. But in addition to all of that, he also had a baby raccoon. Well, there you go. Yeah, you have to. Find- that is, he charged with with rac- He's not charged with raccoon kidnapping or anything, is he? No, in fact, there's not even an explanation as to why he had the raccoon, but there is the cutest picture of the little baby raccoon on the back seat of the police vehicle. Oh, and if they weren't, you know, violent creatures full of disease, I would want to just cuddle its little face. Uh, they're scary. Um, and if you tried to cuddle its little face, it would probably go taking swipes at your little face with its very, very sharp claws. Yeah, like unless you're working in the area of wildlife rehabilitation, if you're driving with a raccoon in your car, chances are you're drunk. I have had clients with animals in their cars that they shouldn't have had. Uh, and I've been to not raccoons though, but uh, you know, I've been working in a driving defense law office since 1999 mm-hmm. when I articled. So you can imagine there's been a couple, not a lot. Um, but you know, somebody pulled over and they've got this strange animal in the car at the same time. There's an impaired driving investigation. So it does happen. Um, but yeah, the raccoon's pretty cute. And, um, I suppose, uh, all of those things together combined with the raccoon can make this person the ridiculous driver of the week. Absolutely. And that's our podcast, Paul. Uh, if you have a driving law related issue or you got caught with a raccoon in your car, please give me a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.